right, let's uh, let's gather back and uh, let me mention a couple of books that I would recommend. I'll write these out later, but uh, you know, Eric Metaxas. Many of you are familiar with him. Wrote a uh, uh, biography on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And so he wrote the forward to this edition of The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, so recommend that. And then Dallas Willard, several books uh, of his are great. This one's called The Divine Conspiracy, Recovering Our Hidden Life in God. Um, both really, really good if you want to take what we're talking about uh, a bit further. Caleb, would you close those two doors and... Uh, Levi, would you, yeah, Andrew, that's great, because that ice maker makes a lot of racket. So, uh, Jason, we're recording, right? Good. All right, well, let's, let's pray again. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for telling us the truth about yourself and about ourselves and um, for demanding of us what's good for us. Help us to see that, receive that, and act upon that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Normally, my my idea for these discipleship lectures is not to do what we're doing tonight, which I'm giving you two sections. I want us to generally spend more time interacting, but because this is kind of the introductory thing, I wanted to lay the groundwork, get the big picture of what we're doing in regard to discipleship, why it's so important. Uh, but going forward, we'll, we'll do things a little bit differently. Um, let me get a, Gary, if you can kind of help me get a head count here. Maybe it'd be easier to say, who, who will not be able to be here in the morning? We're, we're looking at buying some stuff for breakfast. So a couple, three, three or four. Uh, but I know David and Lee are supposed to be here tomorrow. They weren't able to be here tonight. So it's probably about a wash. So if you give me a, just get an estimate, Gary. So we're going to pick up some uh, kolaches and donuts and have coffee in the morning. So if you want to get here uh, a little bit early, you know, like a quarter till eight for being able to eat a little bit before we start, we do want to start on time. Nathan will be starting and just talking to him during the break. I'm already excited about what he's got to share over uh, discipleship in the church. I think you're going to be very encouraged. I was just in the few minutes we talked. All right, let's go back to Luke 14. After Jesus says that we have to die to ourselves and hate our families, um, he, he now says that we have to forsake all that we have. I think the New American Standard says you must give up all your possessions or you cannot be my disciple. And so it's very costly to follow Jesus in the true way of discipleship. Um, I've given this illustration before. A few school teachers will uh, uh, relate to this. If I said to Roy, Roy, uh, in your, how many students do you have in your history class? Uh, you would tell me a number. And, and I'd say, well, what about so-and-so? And I name a name and I happen to know something about him and know that he's a goof-off, and, and you say, well, he's technically a student. He signed up for the class, but he's actually failing. And if he doesn't, you know, get his act together here pretty soon, he's, he's, he's going to fail the class. 
Jim, you know that, right? you got students like that. So in one sense, they're a student. But another way you could also say, but he's not really a student. He's a student in name only. He's on the roll. He's signed up. He's, if we're using our analogy here for the church, he's baptized. He's a member of the church, but he's not really a disciple. See how that can work? So you can have it's what we would call objectivity of the covenant. There are people, aren't there people who are married? Aren't there husbands who aren't really husbands? Objectively, they're husbands. They're married. That's what makes them a husband by definition. But they're running around on their wife or they're not taking care of her or the family. We say, well, yeah, but he's not really a husband. He's, what we mean by that, he's not acting like one. And if he keeps that up, he's, he's not going to be one objectively either because he's going to be divorced. Or you're going to flunk out of the class and you're not going to be able to enroll again. The same thing's true with discipleship. And so we have to release our claim on the things that we love the most. Hold them with an open hand. They're gifts from God anyway. And so we have to count this cost very carefully. In order to help his disciples calculate the cost of following him, Jesus gave them two parables from daily life. The first parable came from the building trade. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, uh, lest after he has laid the foundations and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You've perhaps seen those kind of situations driving uh, around, especially in the big city, where you'll see some framed structure that's obviously been sitting there for maybe years, unfinished. And you wonder, I wonder what happened. Did somebody die? Uh, Did they go to jail? Uh, Something happened that interrupted that project and wasn't finished. And so there's no sense in starting a project, especially a big project, that requires a strong foundation like a tower unless you have the resources to finish it. Failure to count the cost often happens then with construction projects. Building costs are higher than expected, and unless the owner has allowed for the necessary contingencies, that project might not ever get finished. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that we don't make the same mistake in the Christian life. It'll cost us everything to follow him. And so Jesus then gave a second parable from the ancient uh, and the expensive art of war. What king going to, uh, to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So according to the famous military advice of Sun Tzu, a foolish general begins a battle hoping for victory, whereas a wise general begins a battle already having secured it. When the enemy forces are overwhelming, however, a wise general will not fight at all, but instead negotiate for terms of peace. This is what Robert E. Lee did when he finally surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox. As General Lee counted the cost, he knew that his only wise course was to surrender. So 
So like the parable of the unfinished tower, the parable of the two kings warns us to count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. What Jesus requires is nothing less than total surrender of all that we are and all that we have. That pretty much covers it. And he says, so likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. It reminds me of the rich young ruler. Comes to Jesus, you know, I've followed the law, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. And Jesus looked at him, looking at him, loved him. See, we've said some hard things so far because we're quoting Jesus. Why does Jesus say such hard things? In order to save you, Jesus must be in possession of you. You can't be in possession of you. You can't save yourself. That's the problem. In order for him to rescue you, he's got to rescue you from you. And you have to bow the knee to him. You have to get on board with him. You have to go where he's going And there's only one way to do that. So Jesus, looking at the young ruler, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Remember the response? But he was sad at this word when what he wanted to hear. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, the summary, unless we hate our families, carry our crosses, and count the cost to renounce our right to everything we have, we cannot be his disciples. It may well be that Jesus will want us to keep some of what we have in order to use it for his glory. But if Jesus calls us to do it, we must be ready to give up anything and everything for him. Have people done that? Yeah, many. In fact, I would suggest that we're sitting in this room tonight because people have given up all kinds of things, including their lives, to advance the gospel through the centuries so that we could be sitting here. This means, this is what it means to count the cost. Again, from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes, Earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. In the wilderness, God gave Israel the manna every day, and they had no need to worry about food and drink. Indeed, if they kept any of the manna over until the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciples must receive his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, he spoils not only the gift, but himself as well, for he sets his heart on accumulated wealth and makes it a barrier between himself and God. Where our treasure is, there our trust, our security, our consolation. There is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Hoarding is idolatry. So what are you clutching 
that is keeping you perhaps from truly following Jesus the way he demands to be followed. So Jesus calls us to renounce everything for him and then to receive back from him whatever he wants us to have. Once I've given Jesus my family, my life, and my all, what else is left? Only the life that Jesus wants me to have the way he wants me to have it. And now he'll send me back to my friends and my family and to my things and even to myself. This time to hold them with an open hand and this time with a perspective that will enable me to truly love and use them all. So discipleship, if we can kind of boil this down, is it begins with death. Just think of it this way, self-denial. What is sin? Selfishness. What is immaturity? Selfishness. What is maturity? Selflessness. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is the definition of the only mature man that ever was. And he is the very definition of love, of self-sacrifice. And so if in following him, the goal is to become like him, that means dying to self daily, And giving of ourselves, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Giving of ourselves, denying ourselves for the sake of others, loving God and loving our neighbor, is what discipleship is about. And it starts with death. In fact, It's a daily dying, not just a one-time thing. Take up your cross every single day. So long before he ever went to the cross, Jesus had counted the cost and determined that he would pay, pay it for our salvation. He set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing what was coming. He determined to continue on his way until he finished his work, which he did, to the agony of his body and soul. And now Jesus rightly calls us to imitate him in our discipleship, giving up everything to follow him. So the last warning he gives in Luke 14 comes with force. The disciples are to be the salt of the earth, people through whom God, God's world is kept from corruption. At every stage of its life, the church has faced the challenge not only of living up to Jesus' demands, but of placing them before the world. And so if we're not disciples of Jesus Christ, then we're of no spiritual use. This is the point of the many parable that Jesus gave to close this discourse. He said, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land or for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
What's important here is that unless we follow Jesus in the true way of Christian discipleship, then basically we are worthless to the kingdom of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're as worthless as salt that isn't salty. What Jesus said about salt that isn't salty can also be said of a disciple who's really not a disciple. Is disciple a word? A disciple who doesn't love Jesus more than anything else is not truly a disciple. Now, I want to do two quick things here, just kind of some lists, some checklists. I'm just going to hit them quickly. First, five principles of discipleship from Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Let me just read that text real quick. Paul said, Him, speaking of Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, or you could uh, translate that word mature in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So Paul says, I'm making disciples. I am making people. My goal is to turn all of you into Christ image bearers, to be like Christ, to be mature like Christ, to be grown up, to be truly human. So, Five principles. Number one, the heart of a disciple. Of the heart of discipleship is proclaiming Jesus. Him we proclaim. The major theme of Colossians is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all of creation. He is preeminent above all things. Everything. Not just the religious world. Not just church. Not just Jesus in your heart. Jesus is preeminent of all things created. He's not created, but he is preeminent over all things that are. Just before these words, in verse 27, Paul reminds the Colossians that God has revealed the mystery of Christ to them and that Christ is personally present with them. That's the good news. That's the gospel that we proclaim We proclaim Jesus to men and women who will go on to proclaim Jesus to the world. 2 Timothy 2, 1-7 through You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Number two... The means of discipleship are teaching and warning with wisdom. We do this in a lot of different ways, and some of the other guys will be talking about this both in the church and in the family tomorrow. But we must train those we disciple in the Word of God and show them how to live lives that glorify Him. That's your chief end. Our responsibility is not only to teach those we disciple the right way, but also to warn them 
when they're going the wrong way. And to do so with all of God's instruction, right? Not a, we're not a harsh, uh, bring the hammer down. We're showing, we're loving in grace. We're speaking the truth. We're speaking it in love. We're speaking it sacrificially for the sake of the, for the object of our beloved, who is our beloved. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction of, in righteousness that the man of God may be what? Mature. What Paul's saying in Colossians. I want to present every man mature, and the only way to do that is with the Bible, with the Word of God. Getting God's thoughts into you so that you think the right way about yourself and about Him and about the world. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible, it's thorough. It covers all the bases. Don't forget that Scripture also says that this must be done in a spirit of gentleness and out of love. Number three, the goal of discipleship is to present everyone mature in Christ. Through Christ's redeeming work, believers grow in maturity. The goal of discipleship, therefore, is not just to make converts that make more converts, but for all believers to become increasingly like Jesus. In your mind, look behind you. Look in the rearview mirror. Look at the last six months or the last year of your life. How far have you come in Christ? Are you pulled over at a rest stop? Or perhaps you've been in reverse? Or do you say, you know what? i got a long way to go, but I'm making some progress. I can see the change. I can see the improvement. Yeah, I got I got some tough stuff ahead of me, some hills and curves, some hairpins, but we're making progress. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, how do you know you're saved? To use a common language. Because he's conforming me to the image of his son. I can see it. I see the fruit. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's a description of us. Throughout Scripture, discipleship is compared to parenting. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4-12, but... As we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so, remember now, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow when I give my talk on missions, but Jesus says, go into the world baptizing and doing what? Making disciples. So the gospel is not just getting people into heaven. The way they get into heaven is by becoming disciples, by becoming Christ-like, the work of God. So Paul says, but we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were a gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. 
So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, there's evangelism, right? But also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. In other words, we're showing people the gospel. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. They have an ultimate goal of, parents have an ultimate goal of launching their children out. So don't, if you're discipling someone, don't be Jesus to them, but point them to Jesus. Number four, the cost of discipleship is toil and struggle. Like most valuable things, discipleship also requires energy, time, and hard work. It's costly. The Greek word which is translated as labor in this passage means to grow weary, tired, and exhausted, to toil with wearisome effort. Seth walked in tonight, this young, vibrant guy. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm tired. And then I noticed his pants were dirty too. That's good. A young man ought to be tired this time of day. And we ought to be tired as believers, and the labor and the toil. Not, as, not because it's a burden. It's a joy. There's pleasure in hard work. There's a different kind of pleasure. The word for strive is often used to describe the strenuous exertion that goes into an athletic competition or a fight. And so Paul fought and labored to the point of exhaustion to present believers mature in Christ. Discipleship cost him greatly, and it should cost us as well. The fifth principle is the power of discipleship is, comes from him, his energy. Paul says that he labors and strives, but he follows those words with a very important clause. Quote, according to his working, which works in me mightily. We labor and strive, yet we have him to depend on. And while we do exert our energy, it's not ultimately our energy that will do the work of transforming hearts and lives. But the power of God, we're simply instruments in his hand. We've given ourselves to him to use. Now, the final thing is, uh, see what our time is. I'm just going to read these because I want to have some time to visit and pray. Um, but I can give you more detail. I got a lot more here than I thought. So I'll just give you these seven things. First, the life of a disciple was anticipated in the Old Testament and made explicit in the Gospels, fleshed out in the Epistles, and other New Testament writings. So in the Old Testament, it talks about the children of Israel walking in God's way. And when they turned from God, they were walking in some other way. So that picture of walking, of following, of of going somewhere. Number two, discipleship is the highest calling, the core identity, and the central task of the church, making disciples. It's not about 
everything we do. You've heard me say, your family, perhaps you have, I hope you have, uh, if I could put words at, at your house, it would say, this place is a communion of love, a community of love. And everything you do at your house, when you go to work, when you take out the trash and you cook dinner and you make love to your wife and you play with your children and you mow the lawn and you have people over and you have family worship, everything you do should serve that purpose of making your home a community or a communion of love. Everything that could, could going to work do the opposite, you bet. It can become an idol. It can become a tyrant. It can distract you. Uh, and so soon you've lost sight of your goal. Our goal is to make people in the church like Christ. Of course, if we do, we'll be a communion of love too. But that's the goal. And if we get distracted and lose sight of the fact that all of our singing, all of our worship, all of our prayer, all of our fellowship meals, all of our Bible studies, all of our private conversations with one another are there to serve that purpose when we lose sight of that, then those things can actually work against us. So worship becomes rote instead of meaningful. Or we're having all of our conversations are about hunting and football. And those have a place, I believe. We could talk, maybe we could have some discussion about how that works. But if that's all we do, and we never are discussing and challenging each other, to be more like Christ, then we're missing the point. We've lost our vision. Number three, disciples of Jesus seek to glorify their Lord by becoming like him in all respects. Number four, the life of discipleship is characterized by a pattern of self-denial and a focus on others. Um, you know, Mary and I were talking the other day when Aaron, our son, was born, uh, and he was about a little over a year old. We found out we were expecting Kristen. And we've both talked about this since, and maybe you've experienced this if you've had more than one child. I remember thinking almost with a little fear, how could we love another child like we love this one? And a little concern there that either we weren't going to love the second one as much as the first one, but what happens? Parents, your love grows. God, God just gives you more, a bigger heart, right? So it turns out you do love them, you know, and then you get more. And that's, that's the same thing here. As we give ourselves away, what does the Bible say about giving? Give and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together and running over. So as you give, you think, well, if, I, if I'm always denying myself and giving, giving this away, then how do I ever get anything? Well, it's magic. God multiplies loaves and fishes and love. And as you're doing that, you know what happens? Your wife starts respecting you and your kids respect you and everybody else respects you and they love you and they want to help you and they want to encourage you and they want to be around you and they want your advice and they want all. And then you feel gratified and thankful because you see how that's helping other people and it gives you joy and you get pleasures you could have not gotten any other way. It's magic. Number five, 
authentic discipleship requires the initial and often ongoing act of repentance and turning away from sin. This is not a one-time deal. It's dying daily. It's repenting daily, sometimes more than once a day. Number six, it requires int- discipleship requires intentional practices that r- gradually become enduring habits. Start out doing a little thing every day, reading the Bible, praying, as you heard me say, making your bed, taking out the trash. When you take that shot to the trash can and you miss, you go pick it up, put it in there instead of leaving it on the floor. And we go down a million little things where you just say, I'm just going to do little things until they become good habits to glorify God. Number seven and last, an essential element of effective discipleship is community. God's salvation is not intended primarily to create individual Christians, but to create a people that share an identity in Christ. Dallas Willard put it this way, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's the church. And we'll leave my talk tonight, and Nathan can take up that subject first thing in the morning. All right, first, any comments or questions? Really welcome your comments. Yes, sir. The, the habit building that you just talked about. I, I, I can see myself getting into habits, and I have habits of preparing myself for worship and you know, getting into family worship at home, these kinds of things, and they're good. Um, one of the things that we talk about at eTech is reinventing continuously. Now we have to can continuously think of ways to shake ourselves up. Are there ways that Christians can do that kind of thing? When, when we build habits which are good, sometimes they become stale. Yeah. yeah. I do think, well, I think Scripture is talking about exhort one another uh, daily. So we have to be, and there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, it, it and so I do think variety and, and verity is maybe a better word, uh, is is good, but that's the problem isn't our habits. The problem is our hearts. Uh, Chesterton talks about this when he talks about we grow old as sinners in, in a decaying world. And so you take a little kid and do something, um, you know, like pull a coin out of their ear. And they, what do they want you to do? Do it again. <laughs> and next time they see you, you know, a little kid. Pastor Booth, would you get a, would you pull a coin out of my ear again? You know, every, and he said, God's a lot more like those children than we are. And so God, when he raises a field of daisies and he does it again next year and the year after that and the year after that, because God just says over and over, do it again, do it again, do it again. And we're like, yeah, I've seen a field of daisies. I want to see a field of tulips this time. Uh, maybe I'll be excited about that. And, and I think it is an indication that we have to fight against. That's why I really, you've heard me promoting, and I really like this book, Every Moment Holy, because it is calling us to look at the world differently. And I think we never can stop doing that. Because if we do, then even when we're doing good things, we grow old. We grow tired. We grow weary. We don't see what we should be seeing. 
we kind of glaze over. And so we have to stir up one another to what? Love and good works. What is love? Self-denial. You're going to have to get out of your rut. You're going to have to pay attention tomorrow when we, or Sunday when you're singing those hymns and listen to the lyrics and think about them and not just sing them. And you'll have to tell yourself that again the next Sunday and the next Sunday, uh, probably for the rest of your life. So I don't know if that answers, but I think that's why we do need each other. To, if I was just suddenly not around you, man, I'd be in horrible shape very, very quickly. Uh, spiritually. Uh, I need you. I think we need each other. Even just our presence does some of that, but we need to do better. Other thoughts on that, Jonathan? One way to do that, and, and what Nathan's talking about, whether it's a business or spiritual growth, is to search out those that you want to be like that, are, that have some of those habits, particularly in Areas that uh, you might find, like consider yourself weak, and somebody's going to challenge you and, and kick you in the kick you in the skin and say, you know, "Get after it and, and get, get busy doing that." And uh, that's that's helped helped me uh, when I was younger to seek out guys that I wanted to be like that, that you know, raising their kids well, people that I that I could uh, emulate and, and help grow that way. That's good. It's a balance because some you have to, what you guard against on the other the other the, you have to know where the ditches are on both sides uh, because the ditch on one side is we want everything new and novel. The Athenians were always looking for something new. We just need something new. Oh, that's old. We heard that before. Tell us something we hadn't heard before. And I find Christians that way. They want every sermon, uh, every lesson to have some some new thing they've never heard. Oh, I know all that. Yeah, but are you doing it? You know, that's the point, is to do it. The Bible repeats itself on many, many things, right? In fact, that's one of the ways, if you're doing a good Bible study, you say, oh, the Bible mentions that 342 times, right? So that must be important, because it keeps talking about it. Um, but So we have to guard against novelty for novelty's sake, but that doesn't mean that when you're at home doing family worship that you have to have a little, you know, eight-point formula that you follow every time for 20 years. You can laugh. You can do something a little different today. You can freshen it. Every now and then it, the pot needs to be stirred a bit. So anybody else on that or any, any other comments or thoughts here? Yes, sir. And this is a little different than what they were talking about. But at the beginning, you made an analogy about the guy going to some remote village and, and having this hard time. And my boss went to Richard And if you don't know a story, you, you need to learn it. But he's, from the way we see it today, he's facing death maybe for him and what I see he's facing it with 
tremendous pleasure. And I admire him. And this idea of building off one another, I hope that his iron sharpens me. Absolutely. And so a good example here, and I've talked to Rick enough to know that he really wants this, and he's a good example, is he actually wants people to draw close to him, not pull back. And yet our tendency if somebody's going through a hard time is to step back, especially something like this, and to get quiet and not... Because we, we you see, kind of being selfish in that sense. We're not serving him. We're kind of serving ourselves because it makes me feel awkward Therefore, I don't want to do it because I don't like doing anything that makes me feel awkward. But the Bible says, well, you know what? Deny yourself. So, there's somebody here that's more important than you right now. And not only could you serve him by giving some encouragement and showing some interest, but then, as Glenn just mentioned, the irony of this is he turns around and serves you <laughs> in ways you wouldn't have been served. If It's the same way when we get to know each other that's why I do think having some conversations about a camping trip and football and all kinds of that, what I call front porch time, just getting to know each other and laughing together and all that, because when we do that, now when I pray for you, I know you. I'm not, you're not a stranger. You're not somebody, an abstraction that sits on the other side of the sanctuary on Sunday morning. You're my brother. I've cried with you. I've laughed with you. I've put up with you. I've been bored by you. Um, you've agitated me, and I've had to learn to be patient with you, and you've had to learn to be patient with me. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that does involve some abrasiveness sometimes. <laughs> what else? It's good. Andy, I was thinking sometimes... Based on the status quo, we talked about, you talked about the very beginning of your but uh, radical discipleship, even in the church, can be marginalized. So, like, you can be weird even in your own circles by being fully devoted, right? And, and I think there's a dimension there. I think, um, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't even know what my question is. I'm just thinking about that. Uh, because as, I, I think one of the goals is, in a church setting is for us to change the status quo of really what we want to do, right? But in that process, it, there is going to be that, uh, that struggle of growth as individuals and as men and leaders and families. As, as we start to refine and push forward, we may not fit in as well as we used to, right? We may be pushing the boundaries a little bit. We have to have courage in doing that and lead the way and also do it with love, not to separate ourselves that's a very good point. Iron sharpens iron, but it also rubs people the wrong way sometimes, right? And that is part of the process. So there are times when, you know, I've seen this in churches where, oh, so let's talk about, again, the two ditches. One ditch is self-righteousness. I'm better than the rest of you because I read my Bible more than you do. And I pray more than you do. And I do this more. You know, I become a Pharisee. And so that's a danger on one side. And the danger on the other side is, oh, I don't want to be a Pharisee, so I'm going to, I'm going to be real. I'm just going to let you know what a jerk I am and, and what a sinner I am and, and give into it and say, oh, I'm just a sinner. 
You know, I can't do all that holy stuff like you're doing. I'm not a saint, you know. And so that that's the ditch on the other side. And it, all of this is a struggle. It's not, that's why I think Paul talks about striving and labor and fatigue. Uh, I, can't, I can't even imagine how much frustration the apostle must have faced just dealing with all the different churches and situations he was in. Um, and we think, of, we think of Paul as everybody, oh, Paul's coming to town. The apostle Paul's going to be at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church tomorrow. No, man, a lot of them were meeting him on the road with, with rocks in their hands. You know, they were, they were not always happy to see. He wasn't always popular the way we think of it. Um, so, um, my, yes, sir, go ahead. I'm sorry, a seminar on what? Okay. 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 But one of the things he talks about in that book is, I think what he calls true obedience versus paradoxical, or simple obedience, that's what it's called. Simple obedience versus paradoxical obedience, and how when Christ tells us, you know, give away all your possessions, that he needs to do just that. And we often can explain it away by saying, oh, well, he just wants me to live as if I don't have any possessions or not care about them as if I give them all away or be willing to give them all away if I need to, but I don't have to. And uh, we talked about it some in the class, but it's still really hard for me to get my right. You see, we probably don't have time to develop. This would be a great follow-up kind of topic. I don't I actually don't think I agree with Bonhoeffer on that. Um, and there are a lot of things I don't agree with Bonhoeffer's theology on. But um, um, the reason I don't is I look at other people in Scripture, uh, King David or Abraham or Job, and I see men with great possessions, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave a tomb for Jesus. Uh, there's no indication that Lydia, had to, who was a dealer in purple, had to give up her business and stop supporting her family or provide a home for people to meet and worship in. I mean, I could go on and on. I think there's some bad economics there, biblically speaking, and I would challenge that. I, but I would agree the ditch on the other side is to say, oh, well, I'm in theory, I'm willing to lay down my life for Jesus, uh, if someone ever held a knife to my throat and said, deny Jesus, I wouldn't deny Jesus and they could cut my throat, but now I'm not going to live for him. Um, so yeah, you can play those mental justification games. Oh, I'm willing to give up my possessions, but I actually never do. But if I, you know, if I say, but here's a believer who before they were a believer didn't tithe and now they tithe. And now they give generously of their home and their food and their time and their labors to serve other people, including their family, but beyond their family and beyond their church. 
And I go, you know, if, if suddenly everyone in here went and sold their house, their car, their every possession they had but one shirt, one pair of pants, and quit their jobs, I think that'd be disobedience to Jesus. Um, and again, I, we don't have time to develop all that, but I would just challenge that notion. Right, and I think, I think also Bonhoeffer doesn't, he can't obviously mean it as a universal you know, mandate, because, I mean, I think he would see, you know, as well as anybody else, how ridiculous that would be. But uh, I think he, he applies specifically in the case of the rich young ruler, um, where the, the thing that Jesus was asking him to do was literally to go you know, sell out. And he was also making the point to the rich young ruler you're not as good as you think you are. You came to me and told me you've kept the law. Basically, he says, well, what about the part that says thou shalt not covet? He was, he's, Jesus is driving home a point in a really practical, real way that says, okay. Uh, Gary North has a great day I always liked. He says uh, he wanted a bumper sticker that says you shall love the Lord your God with all your money. Uh, which is another way of saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, so um, anyway, 